Actually, last week we talked about, um, <laughs> we did 4,000 years of, of history in 45 minutes. So just put that one through your noodle there for a second. It was, it was really interesting, though. Um, we've gotten a lot of questions about the uh, situation in Israel. A lot of people concerned, a lot of people really taken aback and, and emotionally triggered and all sorts of things. So we thought it would be good to take a couple of weeks and kind of look at that. And last week we looked at the, uh, the history. How did we get here? How did this happen? You know, what has happened, especially we found in the last hundred years, the stage was set for the conflict that has been going on our entire lives. And basically for four or five generations. And it's intractable. And there seems to be no end in sight. There is no good way to solve the issues that were created after the First World War. And so here we are. But what we were trying to do was just like in 2020 when the pandemic hit. And we kind of cleared out here. But there were so many questions with all the social unrest and everything that was going on. So many questions were being raised. And so many, you know, just a, a, a real diametric opposition in terms of opinions and politics and everything that was going on was really threatening to pull us apart. And so when I addressed it, because some things you just can't not address, right? You can't just keep your head in the sand. But I wanted to address it from the point of view that we are not really debating the issues. That's not what we're doing here. As we've said before, this church is micro-focused. We're focused on individuals and their ability to be able to transform inwardly so that they can then make their choices about what they want to do in the community and in the larger group. And so instead of debating issues, instead of talking about them directly, what we were looking at was how do we form a personal response to these issues? A personal response that is still true to what Jesus taught us, true to what we say we believe, and allows us to then form opinions, become you know, educated on what's going on in a way that makes us a part of the solution, at least within our small community, rather than a part of the problem. And this is the way I've been trying to approach the situation in Israel, because there are so many passionate viewpoints on both sides and everywhere else. What is our personal response? How can we respond in a way that is still following our faith, following what we say we believe? How do we learn to absorb news, especially bad news, traumatic news, tragedy, atrocity and loss, all those things, and yet remain balanced enough to still be of service to those around us? Remain enough of who we are retain enough of what we say we believe in order to still be Christ-like. That's what we're trying to do. We still want to be Christ-like. And isn't this what it means to follow Jesus, if you think about it? To stay true to who he was, what he taught us. This is what we're trying to do. We're trying to find that balance. And this, to me, is the true message of the cross. The true message of the cross is that Jesus remained one with perfect love all the way to the end. In the face of what he was going through at that moment, the humiliation, the injustice, the cruelty, the mockery, all of that, he stayed one with perfect love no matter what happened. And even from the cross, he was able to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that is so true. 
When we're lost at the extremes, when we're triggered into these extreme reactions and the hatred that we may feel or whatever, we literally don't know what we're doing. We're gone. The train has left the station and we're just on it. We're really not rationally processing anymore. And he recognized that. He was still in a place while hanging on the cross in that kind of pain to recognize they don't know what they're doing. Please forgive them. How in the world do we get to a place, maybe not quite that radical, how do we get to a place where we can do the same? As we watch the extreme reactions all around us that are really destroying the sense of human decency in many, in many ways, as we watch this honor-shame society, as we had talked about a couple of Sundays before, run wild, not talking about what's right and wrong, but talking about how do we restore honor to the shame that has been perpetrated on us by the other side. Can we form a personal response that keeps us in a liminal position? And I know we keep coming back to that liminal position. It's a position from which we are centered. We are on the threshold between the camps. That doesn't mean that we don't have a passion, passionate opinion and a position of our own, but it means that we can still see when there's something wrong in our camp and we can criticize it. And we have the wherewithal to stand up and speak truth to that power. And we can also see truth when it's coming from the other side, even from a place we didn't expect. That's a liminal position. To have that kind of perspective, to have that kind of awareness that allows us to still be able to see all parties and to do what is best for all of them at the same time. To maintain the love for the enemy that Jesus talked about a few Sundays before as well. How do we do that? Which really means just to retain our human decency with everybody that we meet. One of my heroes, Viktor Frankl, one of the fathers of modern psychology, he said there are only two races of, of humankind. Have you heard this one before? Only two races, the decent and the indecent. That's it. When you think about it, every other category we place ourselves into or nature places us into really don't matter that much. Are you decent? Are you indecent? Come and tell me you're a Christian. I don't really care. Are you a decent Christian? Now I care a lot. That's what we're talking about. Loving the enemy is maintaining our human decency. Our ability to see the other still as a human being who deserves that much. But how do we do this when we're heartbroken? Right? How do we do this when we're in shock? How do we do this when we're traumatized? At that moment when these images are playing through or whatever befalls us in our lives, how do we maintain that kind of balance then? And maybe you don't just then. I don't think it was a, a month or two, a couple months ago, I read a little excerpt from an article written by a chaplain. It was called Momentary Glimpses. And her position was, in, she, was, she was kind of refuting Frankel a little bit, which, of course, got the hairs on the back of my neck standing up because he's my hero, right? But she said, you know, when it comes right down to it, she called it at the junction of crisis and death because she was a long-term care chaplain and was watching people die all the time, watching families go through the grief all the time. When you're at that point right there on that edge, can you really make meaning at that point? Can you rationally work through and make meaning? And her position was, no, you really can't. At that moment, it's not possible. We are in a different kind of space. 
Now, later on, we can go back and we can express or we can apply meaning to that moment if we've gotten through it. But at that moment, not so much. But she said, what you can do is that you can remain present. You can lean in. You can be aware of and hold close and stay connected in such a way that there will be these momentary glimpses, she called them. Just moments where that curtain parts and you see something beyond just the pain, just what's going on at the moment, even the relationships as they are. You get these moments where everything clears out and you can see that. Now, we would say that we're seeing the face of God in those moments if we're just present to them, if we're immersed in them. And that's the best that you can do. There are no words at these moments of the crisis, of the junction of crisis and death, that are going to make any difference. And if you try to say them, it just trivializes the, the intensity of what you're experiencing. But just to be close, to connect, changes everything. And so if we're willing to stay present, if we're willing to stay connected, then we can make a sort of non-rational sense of meaning, and we can glimpse that. And that's what I think we're talking about here. And what we're trying to do is make sure that we stay liminal, we stay decent, until we do get far enough out that we can then bring our rationality back and express the meaning and express the purpose and even our identity. But we've got to get through the initial places. And that's why we had the history lesson last week, trying to understand both sides. Both sides have ancient claims to the land. How can we resolve this? And even if we can't resolve it, how can we at least understand why both sides have such a passionate claim, why they feel the way that they do? If we can see the issues more clearly, then maybe we can start to identify with a keen sense of loss, the keen sense of victimhood, possibly, that is being felt on both sides of an issue like this. And then we can avoid the extremes. We can avoid losing our decency. And we can avoid just reflexive reactions like we're seeing all around us very high profile in the media. We can avoid that in ourselves so that it doesn't affect the people who are closest to us. So this week I wanted to move a little bit further in this vein. We asked the yesterday, uh, last week, we said, if anyone had any questions that they wanted to ask or anything that they wanted to discuss, to, to let me know. And I got four coming through in the week. And uh, I wanted to take a look at those. It was interesting. One was an ethical question. Another was emotional, very emotional. It wasn't so much a question, it was more of a statement. And then there were two that were speculative kind of talking about end-time scenarios and things that are coming and powers that are possibly manipulating us and so on and so forth. And so what I want to do today is take a look at the ethical and the emotional parts of this, and then we can get to the speculative later. Because I'm thinking this may give us some more tools to be able to work with as we're processing, as we're trying to get through and form our own personal responses. And so this first question... I don't know how this is going to sound to you. Should the United States fund Israel for its ground war? Now, that's a very political statement, you know, question. And it gets into a lot of issues. Actually, it's an ethical nightmare, if you want to think about it. Think about all the imperatives that are clashing. 
in just that question. That's why it was interesting to me. Not that we're going to debate whether or not. That is not the point, right? But you think about a question like that because a situation like we're seeing in Israel is full of these ethical nightmares. All these clashes of imperatives that on their own may seem like they're valid, but when you put them together, how do you deal with that? So I'm not going to try to answer this question, and it wouldn't matter. My opinion is irrelevant here anyway. But how do we come to some sort of response for ourselves? And I thought maybe it would be good to take a look at ethics itself, because we don't do that very much anymore. Did you know that there are three major ethical systems that philosophers have come up with through the ages? The first one, it's got a fancy name, it's called deontology. Big word that simply means kind of the study of duty. What are our duties when we are looking at a situation or looking at a question? And the main person who is uh, putting this forth would be a philosopher by the name of Immanuel Kant. And he was a uh, 18th century philosopher in German. You know those Germans, they're going to come down with a. He calls them categorical imperatives. All right? Now, what's a categorical imperative? Categorical imperative. It's an action that is necessary in itself with no reference to any other end. And so this would be an absolute universal law, let's say. Let's put it that way. Universal laws, universal duties that are morally right all the time. They're always right all the time. And they can be arrived at either by reason, they can be arrived at by religious um, decree. I mean, you got the Ten Commandments. That can be looked at as categorical imperatives. Each one of those laws are absolute. You have to obey them all the time. On a secular side, you could look at human rights in the same way. Human rights are create categorical imperatives, things that we should always do. And so taking a look at this situation, we would say, well, Israel is an ally. We have a duty to be faithful to our allies, to have fidelity to our allies. And so we always need to support our allies. Kind of like saying, my country, right or wrong. You know, that would be like a categorical imperative. It's inflexible. I've asked here several times, and, uh, and we've done it in small groups as well, is lying always wrong? So we asked that as kind of an entree into ethics. We didn't get into it more formally like we're doing today. But is lying always wrong? Well, if you answer yes, then you are engaging in deontology. You are seeing lying, maybe because it relates to the Ten Commandments, but you're seeing it as a categorical imperative. It has to always be followed. The problem with categorical imperatives, as you can imagine, they can lead to some absurdities. If you always have to follow a duty and you can't ever break that duty, how do you deal with another imperative that comes alongside? There was another uh, philosopher by the name of Peter Singer, and he came up with uh, the drowning child thought experiment. You're going to work. You are obligated to go to work. And as you're going through, you hear a cry from a, a pond that you're passing, and there's a child in the water who's flopping around and crying for help. Do you stop and help the child? But you have this imperative that you've got to be at work. You've got obligations there. Something over there is calling you. What do you do? And of course, he lays on more and more of these other competing imperatives. 
you know, because everybody says, well, yes, I'm going to help the child. But as you pile on more and more of these, people start dropping off. The question is, what do you do with those competing imperatives if you just simply say they're categorical? Well, there was another philosopher by the name of William David Ross. He came up with the idea of prima facie duties. Prima facie is Latin. It just means on first glance or first appearance. In other words, there are some duties that seem at first glance to be categorical that are the prime ones. But he's not so much looking for what is morally right all the time. He's looking for what's morally right in the situation. So he's going to take that idea of the ontology and he's going to soften it a bit. Now, where are some of these categorical imperatives, that he, or these prima facie duties that he talks about. Well, fidelity is one of them, being faithful, keeping your promises, right? Reparation, making good on something that you broke. Gratitude, non-injury, harm prevention, preventing harm for other people, but also beneficence and justice. Those would be a list of some of these duties that he sees. But a first duty that starts you down a path can be superseded by another duty that takes precedence. For instance, if I promise Marion that we're going out to dinner on a certain night and then someone calls and has an emergency, what do I do? It may be that the emergency is much more important than dinner, which we can redo. Now, if I do that too many times, I'm going to lose her attention completely, right? But once in a while, that other duty may take precedence over the first one. And this is what he acknowledges in this idea of prima facie. And so that is a system that works on the choice being made before the action even takes place. But if you had then answered that question, is lying always wrong? And you said, no, it's not. Well, then you're engaging in a different system. And that system is called consequentialism. And it, the, the meaning of it is right in the word. What it means is that we're not going to look so much at the duty itself. We're going to look at the consequences of the action to see what is morally right. That the consequences, what comes from the action, is going to dictate our moral duty. Now, this is getting dangerously close to the ends justify the means, right? And that can be a disaster, so now we enter someone like John Stuart Mills, who's talking about utilitarianism. Now, what does utilitarianism? It's a form of consequentialism. But what it's basically saying is that our moral duty is to create the greatest good for the greatest number of people. We should always use that as our bottom line. If we are doing that in this situation, then we would be weighing the consequences of funding or not funding Israel and seeing which one is going to do the greatest good, which is going to do the least harm for the greatest number of people. So you see how that works? The third one is called virtue ethics. Now, no less than Thomas Aquinas and Plato and Aristotle talked about virtue ethics. And it's kind of an appeal to authority, if you think about it. You can probably put it in a nutshell with WWJD. What would Jesus do, right? So virtue authority is going to be looking to a virtuous agent, a model of human virtue, of human decency, you know, a really good person in all balanced ways, the ideal human character. And that person then is forcing us to ask ourselves, what kind of person should we be? 
And so basically you're saying, what would virtue do in this situation? What would someone like Jesus do in this situation? Do that. And then alternately, what would vice do in this situation? Don't do that. And so you have these three principles. The last one, the virtue ethics, what would Jesus do is difficult to apply in a question like this, which is macro-oriented. Because as we've said a million times in here, Jesus' teaching is all micro. It's dealing with individual relationships, not with large groups or armies or nations or whatever. But Jesus' principle to love the enemy demands operating with that human decency that we've been talking about, with a concern for life, for all life, not just your own or those in your camp. So if we then decide to fund Israel for their ground war, we would want to put in place some form of monitoring, right? some form of accountability, contingencies in place that if harm starts being created that we didn't anticipate, that we can either stop the funding or in some way change the the calculus here. But virtue ethics are going to force us to think that way. How would that person handle this situation? What kind of person should I be? How should I handle the situation? Now, in Jesus' day, if you think about it, the Pharisees were categorical, weren't they? They were inflexible. They were categorical. You obeyed the law no matter what. Now, they, of course, created their own loopholes. But even their loopholes had the illusions of being lawful at the same time because their allegiance was to the law. The law had to be obeyed. It was categorical. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, if you really look at his teaching and the way he operated, he was much more situational. He was much more consequential. He was absolutely love-based. He was always asking the question, what does love require in this moment right here and right now? Now, he respected the law. He said, I'm not here to abolish it. But he never looked at it as an absolute, as a categorical imperative. It was a guide toward the kind of relationships that we should be having a guide toward these things. So the ethic of Jesus then is very practical. It's very common sense, but it's based in this radical love that eventually led him to the cross, which is a radical act. But every step along the way is based in the situation, being very present to the situation. And with Jesus, you cannot separate the ethic from presence, from connection, from identification, and even from emotion, if you think about that. The second, since I'm segueing into emotion here, the second contact that I got was from someone who was really having a hard time dealing with the Israeli situation. And he sent sent me a text. And I just want to read you the text. Listen to it in terms of what we've just talked about, in terms of how we can process ethically, but also in terms of the momentary glimpses, also in terms of when you are in that emotional state. It's like rationality goes out the window, right? But he writes this. Dave, I was hoping we could have a dialogue about the mental, emotional, and spiritual effects of the war in Israel. I'm not focused on the politics of the war, the macro or the micro, 
but rather the mental, emotional, and spiritual effects on us as we see and hear of the atrocities of the war. I can't imagine what the people who are directly affected are going through and the mental and emotional trauma they will live with for the rest of their lives. I'll share my experience of the war, but what I have to say is so small and almost insignificant, it seems hard to talk about, but here goes. I remember watching the first news reports. I saw images of the 260 young music festival goers massacred and soldiers raising their guns and saying praise be to God. My emotions were overwhelming. It felt like a sword pierced my heart. And everything I thought was good got turned upside down and didn't make sense. I first remember wanting to place blame, who's right or wrong. But I wanted to reconcile what I had just seen and heard with reality, and none of this made sense. Looking for some words of understanding, I googled Gandhi, the peacemaker, and I found this quote, an eye for an eye will leave the whole world blind. I've heard that one before. And in Matthew 5, 38 to 42, do not treat evil with evil, but rather with love. These quotes helped me shift from confusion and despair to at least a way to frame what I was feeling. It's been hard to rise above the politics of the war and stay focused on the humanity of people, the mental and emotional and spiritual effects on all of us. Love, prayer, healing, and understanding is my personal way of coping. Maybe this is the micro after all. Well, of course it is. Of course it's micro. It couldn't be more micro if you think about it. This is a deeply interior personal response to a macro event, isn't it? Now, many of us have had similar reactions. I've talked to you about them. The shock, the disbelief, the grief, disgust, anger, all those emotions rising up. But notice from this writer here, in the moment of his first experience, as he was watching these images, he said good turned upside down, and he couldn't make any sense of what was going on. In other words, he had hit a limit situation. And we've talked about this here a couple of times, but just to review, a limit situation is a situation in which we come to the limits of our ability to, first of all, control anything, but second of all, to even make sense of what's going on. What are some of the limit situations you've experienced? It could be the death of a loved one, a significant person. It could be the loss of a job. It could be watching the news like this. It could be so many things that just take us right to the edge of that precipice. We can't control this. We have no way. We're powerless. And also, we can't even make sense of it. It puts us into moral distress. What's moral distress? Moral distress is being in the gap between the way you think things should be and the way that they actually are, combined with a sense of powerlessness to bring those two together. There's no way for you to do that. How do you stay in the gap? that is so blatant between the way things should be and the way that they actually are. His first reaction, as he is put into this position, right, is to want to place blame. Isn't that the way of it? Isn't that what we always want to do? We want to deflect outward. We don't want to stay in this place. Put it out there someplace, and then we can understand it better. If it's someone to blame, that's something that we can 
absolutely understand. And then let anger come over, take over and mask or obscure any deeper responses that we might be having. But then what was the next thing that he did? And I found this so interesting. He Googled Gandhi. I love that. Couldn't you just like Google Gandhi and get him on the phone? And then he went to Jesus. What was he doing? He was actually practicing a form of virtue ethics, wasn't he? Yes. What would Jesus do? What would Gandhi do? How would they react? These were two that he has in that place uh, as, a, as an ideal human character. How would they react? And that allowed him to begin, begin to shift from the confusion and the nonsense that he felt to be able to reframe the situation for himself, to get above the politics and come back into a sense of human decency. And then he says that love and prayer and understanding was his ability to cope. He had to come back to that through a process. Now, it's not easy for us to make any sort of answer for ourselves that's going to apply to the macro. Now, this doesn't answer anything about the war itself, but it does give us a personal way to move through situations that we need to absorb, but we can't control. And when we look at Jesus, how did Jesus react in his life to similar situations? Could we find a similar situation so that we can see how he processed and how he went through it? I think we can. If we take a look at John 11, starting right at verse 1, this is going to be the story of the healing and the raising of Lazarus from the dead. If you read the end of John 10, um, Jesus of course, he's, he's always getting on somebody's nerves. And uh, so he's uh, got kind of a death sentence out on him. He's got a hit out on him in Judea. So he goes back across the Jordan, and he's ministering in Transjordan, and uh, all his disciples are with him. And while he's there, these things start to take place. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place that he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go again to Judea. Kind of a strange reaction, don't you think? I mean, these are two, these is a, this is a family that he really loved and connected with. We have several stories of them. You all know about Mary and Martha, right? He's over there eating at, at their house, and Martha's running around getting everything ready, and Mary's just sitting at his feet, just absorbing everything, and Martha gets really annoyed at her sister and complains to Jesus, you know, the appeal to authority. But we have these, these two women with these, these kind of almost opposite personality traits. If we put them on the Enneagram, I don't know where they'd end up, but they're not anywhere close to each other. But we know about them, and we know that Jesus loves them, and he comes back to them over and over again. He was a part of their family in a very deep way. And he gets this really bad news. You know, Lazarus, the one you love, is sick unto death. This is a really, really serious 
problem that he's got going, whatever would happen to be. And the news is coming from a remote place. Jesus is not near them at the moment. He's Transjordan. Yeah, it's not really far, but by foot, it takes a while. Was he triggered emotionally, do you think? Did he feel anything, do you think? Of course he did. Absolutely. Just like we get triggered from news from all around the world that we can't help but see. They're all over our personal devices and our television sets. But what does Jesus do? He stays where he is two days longer. What's that all about? He's ministering there, of course. Is this some sort of prima facie duty that Jesus is actually practicing here? He's got a friend. A friend is sick. They're calling him to come and help. And yet, he's got this duty to those that he is ministering to right where he is, on the other side of the Jordan. He's got two competing imperatives. He makes the choice to stay. Interesting. Is that really what's going on here? Is it a prima facie duty? Did his duty to the group that he was with supersede the duty to his friend? Or was he taking a look at it from a utilitarian point of view? What could he do that would create the greatest good for the greatest number of people? Do the least harm for the greatest number of people? Do you feel that there was the place that he could do that since there were so many people coming to him? And if he went back, it would only be the one family? Is that what's going on there? It's hard to know if Jesus would really be thinking that way, of course. And I don't think that he was, you know. But it's interesting how he is following some of these ethical principles that came millennia later. But I believe that Jesus was simply all about presence. He was all about connection. That his identity with, his love for, connection with, identification with, those that he was with at the moment, was everything to him. Whoever he was with, he was fully there. It's hard for us, maybe you've been with someone whose sense of presence was almost electric. I mean, when they looked at you, it was almost like they were looking right into you and nothing was distracting them. I remember Lou Sauer, a guy before I was ordained, even on a crowded Sunday morning, he could look at you and make you feel like you were the only person in the room. He just had that ability, that kind of presence. If we were with Jesus, I think that's what we would feel. That's what we would experience with him, this intense presence. He was there for these people. Here was something being called to him, but he was there for these people, immersed in that connection. And I think that immersion, that presence, is what dictated his ethical choices. Now, when we get, when he does leave and he does go, then he encounters first Martha and then Mary. And we know something about their character, but look how these encounters go. At verse 17, we're going to jump forward. So when Jesus came, this is to Bethany, he found that he had already been, that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews who had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother... Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, even now, I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus says to her, 
I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. All right, so we know something about Mary and Martha's character. We know that Martha is the one who is cognitive, right? She's practical. She's reasoned. She's dutiful. She sees that clearly, and she's rooted in the present moment from that point of view, that practical point of view. Jesus meets her where she is. He's fully present to her. And he provides at that moment what love requires. But notice, how can you provide what, love's requ- what love requires if you're not present to the moment? If we aren't fully present to the person so that we can see what they need, how will we know what love requires? That's why this immersion, this awareness, this present is so all important to all of us, but to Jesus as well. He is fully present to her. He knows her. He knows what she needs. And so what does he give her? He gives her a reasoned theological discussion. They talk about it. They talk through it. And this is probably just a small encapsulation of what really took place. He talked her down off the ledge. And he knew exactly how to do it. Because he knew her. And he was present to her. Even in his emotional triggers, whatever he was feeling at the moment, he was able to step aside from that and just be there. This is not categorical stuff. This is deeply situational, deeply personal. He sees exactly what she needs. And then from that encounter, at verse 28, when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard that, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her When they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Mary and Martha say the identical line to Jesus. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. They're in identical circumstances. They're in the same spot. Both meetings take place. And yet they're two very different people. Unlike her sister, Mary is the mystic. She's the one who's always, always about personal experience. She's emotional. She's immersive. She's even kind of, if not non-rational, she's certainly less rational in the way that she processes things. So in, contra- in, in contradiction to the way that he deals with his, her sister Martha, what does he do? He simply weeps with her. There are no words. He just weeps with her. That's all. What love requires for her drives his ethical choices. That's what we see Jesus doing over and over. 
So as we look at this situation, or we look at any situation in our lives, what is our best personal response to the situations of moral distress that we get placed into when we hit those limit situations and it puts us into that gap between the way we think things should be and the way that they are. Well, if we follow what Jesus does, allow those first responses to be non-rational. Don't try to make meaning where rationality doesn't exist at those intense moments. Don't try to intellectualize the whole thing place blame or think through it. That's not the time for it. Just immerse. Connect. Be present to everyone and everything that is going on. And then call to mind the responsive of those who you do admire. When Jesus is in the wilderness, he is constantly referring to scripture at every point where he is being tested. He does the same thing. Call to mind the responses of those who remind. Then, afterwards, you can make meaning out of it, rationally, in words. And you can make your ethical choices based on what love actually requires and not some category of ethical choices. A process like this will keep us in that liminal space that we're talking about, in that betweenness, and it'll keep our human decency intact and always in touch with what love requires. That's where Jesus is trying to take us. He's showing us with his life how it works. As we look at these intractable situations around us and we look with horror at what is happening, if we can go through a similar process and most importantly, stay connected, stay present, call to mind what we have come to become convinced of, we can move through to the other side as well and find some measure of peace or at least a way through, even though the circumstances haven't changed. Let's pray. Father, first of all, we do pray for everyone who is going through this tragedy and every tragedy on our planet. There's so many suffering people everywhere that don't get reported. We only hear about the few that are. But for those that we know about and those that we don't, we do pray for their relief. And we pray for ways that we can help in that relief. But initially right now, Lord, we're looking for the sense of connection with you and with each other that will allow us to keep our humanity keep our connection with you, to allow us to keep mirroring who you are, to do what Jesus would do in situations so that we can continue to run this race of life and do it well and honor everyone and everything that you have created. Father, thanks once again for giving us the model, showing us the how. Help us to take the first courageous steps that we need to be able to follow you and follow your way. And never let us forget, we can only do any of this because you did it first. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand.